Well, I'm so excited to continue our journey uh, in the story of the book of Acts as we follow Paul and Barnabas uh, into the, the next part of the region, region that they kind of go into. Uh, as many of you may already know, but just as a, as a quick reminder, uh, the book of Acts is written by Luke to Theophilus. It's his second uh, documentary or letter that he's writing, the Gospel of Luke being the first. Uh, he's writing this book of Acts to Theophilus to kind of demonstrate in very practical terms to Theophilus that everything that Jesus had said and taught in the Gospels, in Luke, while he was here on planet Earth, is now occurring and actually happening. It is, it is a continued authentication of the wonder that is Jesus and the continued unfolding story that we can and should trust that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. In that journey, as Luke is writing to Theophilus, and eventually God will then use that for us today, the book of Acts becomes a space in which we can kind of stare into the unfolding stories of the early New Testament church, and we can begin to realize that the very mission, the very story that they are invited into, that they are called into and sent for, is the same story we continue to be called into, invited into, and sent for. And so now this becomes an incredible vision for us, this book of Acts, that demonstrates to us as we follow the characters in the story, demonstrates to us what we can and should expect as we live our lives out in the story and the mission that God has called us into, and as we follow Jesus with hearts that are devoted to Him and a life story that belongs to him. So this is really the, the great joy of the book of Acts, is that it gives us a very plain, pure view of this is, this is life on mission. This is what it looks like. This is what's going to happen, and this is what you should expect. So we've been following Paul and Barnabas uh, as they were sent out of Antioch, uh, a city with a very healthy church in the early, early parts of the story, and they're sent with John. John goes with them. They go from Antioch to Cyprus. John travels with Barnabas and Paul through Cyprus. The gospel moves along with them. It's the first real official missionary journey that people are sent of that we read about. As we follow them back off Cyprus onto the mainland and heading up north into the region of Galatia, uh, we see uh, John depart and head down to Jerusalem. He has to head back there. So Paul and Barnabas head up into Galatia by themselves. They end up in another city called Antioch, not the one they were sent out of. And there uh, we begin to see a pattern develop as they carry the gospel into uh, this new world. They enter into Antioch, go straight to the synagogue where the Jewish people are because it is the most obvious place to start with the gospel of Jesus because the Jewish people have a long history of the understanding of the story of God. They know exactly how it's played out. They've been longing for a Messiah. So if the Messiah comes, really good place to start is to go to those who've been waiting for him and say, hey, here's the big story. Remember what you've been longing for. Well, this guy, he's the Messiah. And so Paul and Barnabas preach the gospel in the synagogue. The Jewish people are super excited. It spreads out into the city. The, the Gentiles come into the story. And then when Paul and Barnabas say, Gentiles, you can follow Jesus. You do not have to become Jewish first. Oh, some of the Jewish leadership get bent out of shape and they start opposing Paul and Barnabas. Things go badly and they're kicked out of Antioch. They move on to Iconium, also in the region of Galatia. And there we see the same exact story unfold. Go 
to the synagogue, preach the gospel there first. It's where it makes the most sense. It spreads from there into the Gentiles. It comes back into the synagogue. And once again, the Jewish leadership gets stirred up. Uh, They stir up the Gentiles. And Paul and Barnabas leave the city of Iconium after they find out that they're going to be stoned. And so this has kind of been the pattern that we've seen. Now we jump into the next story, the next region that they're going to walk into, the next city. They're still in Galatia, but they walk into another city now, and we're going to follow the story and see what we observe in the story, what we discover in the story that will help us understand more clearly what we should expect as we live lives on mission in our workplaces and social networks and neighborhoods of families in our local and global community, and, and ha- what we ought to be expecting and be watchful on and and kind of be aware of. So let's jump into the story. We're going to go to Acts chapter 14. You can turn there in your Bibles with me. If you're borrowing one of our Bibles that's under the seat, please go to page 600. On page 600, you'll see Acts chapter 14 there. And then uh, if you have your own Bible, Acts chapter 14 verse uh, 8 is where we're going to be. So they're just coming out of Iconium now and they're heading to the next place. In verse 8, it says this, now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprung up and began walking. So that's how our story begins here in Lystra. Now, if, you, if you're watching this and you've been traveling with us through Antioch and then Iconium, you realize this story is starting very differently from the other stories. Both other stories, he entered into the synagogue, he hung out there, he preached the gospel there, it unfolded out of there. In this story, the story begins with him going into Lystra and going to a, a part of the city where there's a lot going on. A lot of people are gathered, and apparently, from what we can pick up in this, Paul is teaching already. He's already speaking. Because this man that we bump into is about to get healed. It says he was listening to Paul teach long before the healing, right? So we know Paul is teaching. We know he's teaching in the city. And we know he's teaching in a city where there is a a large group of people gathered. How do we know all of this stuff? Well, there's a couple of observations here. One, uh, in cities like this, especially during this time, but you see this in the third world today as well, whenever there were people that were either blind or lame or disabled or distraught or poor, where they needed help, they needed people to engage with them, to give them money, to help them live, where do you think they were going to be placed? You think they're going to be placed in some dark corner in the city where nobody comes? No. They're always placed either at the gates of the city, in the center of the city, or at the places of worship in the city, because that's where the most people in the city are going to be moving through. So Paul is preaching in a place in the city that is public, where there are people that are destitute, in particular this guy who cannot walk and hasn't walked for birth from birth. So There Paul is doing that. Why is Paul in this city preaching in public immediately in the center of the city or at the city gates uh, and not going to the synagogue? Well, as you dig into it, it turns out there's a really good answer to that. See, in Lystra, there is no synagogue. 
At this time in history, there is almost no Jewish presence in Lystra at all. In fact, there may be no Jewish presence at all in Lystra. If there is, there's not enough of a Jewish presence that they have created a synagogue and that those Jewish people gather. So when Paul enters into this city, he is entering now for the first time in his missionary journey into an environment that is almost exclusively, if not exclusively, Gentile. So now we are in a totally different ballgame because the realities of the way that God has functioned from Genesis all the way through Jesus is not at any part of this city. This city functions in the typical pagan philosophies that the Greeks and Romans functioned in. There's a bunch of gods. You worship those gods. What you do is you keep them happy so that they will keep giving you what you need and what you want. And that's how you function through life. And so this is the environment that Paul and Barnabas are entering into now. And as they come into this environment, the first moment that occurs as Paul is preaching uh, is, is this story with a guy. Now, what is Paul preaching? What do you think Paul might be preaching? Well, I don't know if you know Paul well, but I know Paul pretty well because I've followed him for a long time in this crazy story. And there's only one thing Paul is ever preaching. If he's in a city and he's talking, I'll tell you what he's preaching. He's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is there to tell people about Jesus and tell people about the story of Jesus and tell people about what God has done and why God has come and what God is going to do for us. That's all Paul ever preaches. He is the evangelist of evangelists. I mean, and that's what he's doing. So he walks in the city. He begins to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And while preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, saying God has come to set us free and to redeem us, whether supernaturally or because of the Spirit in him as as the Spirit of God works with him, he perceives this guy that cannot walk. And it says in the scripture that what Paul knew as he was watching this guy intently is that something was occurring in this guy that caused him to have faith so that he might be healed. Now the temptation here is to take this verse again, like the few other verses in Scripture that say stuff like this, and go, ah, you see, what you need in order to have God do anything for you is you need to have all this faith, and if you believe, then He'll make you better, and if you don't believe, then He won't. So it's up to you. And and we are tempted to pull that out, but if you read Scripture, in fact, the exact opposite is true with the God we serve that he is authoring a story in us and that we come before him and what we believe in is who he is and what he's writing in us, not what he's gonna give us. So this guy begins to believe that this story that Paul is telling about the Messiah that's come, he begins to go, wow, I, I, I believe that. And Paul sees him and says, man, listen, you are buying into the gospel. Wait till you experience the gospel. Watch this. You, get up, walk. And the guy gets up and walks. Can you imagine? How awesome is that? And we are reminded at the very beginning of this story that when you are carrying the gospel, especially into an environment where the people that you are carrying it to know nothing about the gospel, know nothing about the heart of God, know nothing about the history of God, do not understand how God functions because they've grown up in a cultural context where the reality of God has been minimal at best. You cannot simply carry the gospel in as a message alone because the message doesn't resonate. I mean, you're talking to a culture here that serves many gods, and you're just bringing them a new one. And there's Jesus, and he came, and he's one of the gods. 
So you have to enter in with a demonstration and a display of the gospel. That's why we say at Mosaic all the time. If we're going to carry the gospel holistically into the environments God has allowed us to enter into, we need to carry it in as a display or a demonstration of the gospel, doing acts of justice and mercy and love and grace, and we need to carry it in as a proclamation, a declaration, declaring the gospel, explaining it, unpacking it, telling people about Jesus. And what is Paul doing right in the beginning of the story? He comes in, he declares the gospel, he proclaims the gospel. As he watches that happen, he sees a man as he steps into uh, this story, and he goes, why don't you get up uh, and walk? And he produces, in this case, a supernatural act of mercy, an act of power, an act of grace, an act of justice. And he takes something that was broken, and he allows the gospel, the reality of the gospel, that Christ has come to set us free, to set this person free. And that's where our story begins. And how do the people respond to this incredible moment? They've heard the gospel, they've experienced the gospel, they're going to respond. Take a look at this. It says here in verse 11, right after the guy stood up and began to walk, it says, and when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. So what is going on here? Well, honestly, it's not totally surprising. I didn't go, oh my gosh, these people are crazy. What's their problem? No, no, no. Look at the context that they're in, right? They are a pagan society, meaning that they function on, uh, on worshiping multiple gods, and they function in that structure where you do what the gods want, and the gods give you what you want, and that's where they live. So now these two guys come down, and they're bringing a message of good news that God has come to earth, right? So like, okay, that's awesome. Th- these guys are coming to tell us that the gods are coming to earth, And then they affect a supernatural act of power. And so automatically the people go, awesome, these are the gods. Now, the reason that they call them Zeus and Hermes, these two in particular, is because in this particular region of the world, and in Lystra specifically, there was a tradition, a myth, if you will, a story that had kind of uh, uh, traveled through the generations that at a certain point in history that Zeus and Hermes had actually showed up in flesh and blood in Lystra and in that region. And so they actually built a temple in Lystra to Zeus to honor him because he had walked among them in this place. So as far as these people are concerned, Zeus and Hermes have just returned. How awesome is that? They're super excited. They're, they are, their hands are up. There's, they're jumping up and down and screaming. And the critical moment in this story that Luke bothers to add in as a detail for us so we understand what's going on is this. It says they were declaring all of this in what language? In their own native tongue, Lyconian, which Paul and Barnabas would not have understood. I have lived in a home with the unique privilege of having several of my family members at certain times not being able to either speak my language or me theirs. And in those times, during those seasons, I counted on a lot of body language and expression to try to figure out what was going on, and I got a lot wrong during that time. I seemed awful excited, oh, not about the right thing because there was no way to clarify. 
And so can you imagine Paul and Barnabas are sharing the gospel, then a guy gets healed, and they see the crowd, and the crowd goes nuts, and they're super excited, and they're, they're just worshiping, and they're like, woo! I mean, I'd be, I'd be excited. If I didn't know what they were talking about, I'd be excited. And so the story continues on after this exciting moment of the gods have come to see us, the people head off, and guess where they go? Take a look. Verse 13, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city. So now word gets back to the priest of Zeus, who may even have been there when Paul was busy preaching the gospel. Uh, He heads back to the temple, and they go, man, if the gods are among us, then we got to honor the gods. Because remember, we live under a process that if the gods are with you, you honor them. You make them happy, because they've come, and, and you want them to bless you. You don't want them to get mad and then start cursing you. So you're going you're gonna to do something awesome. So take a look at this. It says this. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds to Zeus and Hermes, uh, Paul and Barnabas. So Paul and Barnabas are hanging out, and they're seeing the excitement of the crowd, and things are unfolding, and the priest heads back off to the temple, and as they come around to the gates, there's the priest, there's the people, and suddenly something feels awfully odd. Have you ever been in that moment where you're like, this isn't feeling right? There's something that's not right here. The priest is kind of bowing down in an odd way, pointed toward you. He's got some oxen with him. They're gathering you like they're about to do something special. And at a certain moment, Paul and Barnabas suddenly realize, they ask the question, what's, what's, what's going on here? And one of the guys says to them in, in Greek, uh, they're really excited about you guys. What happened with the guy that was healed, super cool, and they, they want to honor you. They want to worship you because... Truthfully, between you and me, they think you're Zeus and Hermes. <laughs> but hey, it's going to be awesome. And when Paul and Barnabas find out what's going on, this is what occurs. Take a look. Verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out. I love that response. I mean, Paul's loud as it is. He's pretty passionate as it is. But this bothers to tell us that the second Paul and Barnabas find out that the crowd is about to sacrifice to them, that somewhere along the way, as they presented the gospel and explained the gospel of Jesus and then brought an experience of the gospel, that in that experience that the people had of the gospel, they misunderstood, skipped past Jesus, and thought that Paul and Barnabas were the ones bringing them the experience. And it's not a hard jump to make, is it? I mean, I'm not totally surprised. They got something they longed for, uh, a provision of epic proportions. Someone in their city was healed. How much more of that do you think they want? I would want a lot more of that. Paul and Barnabas are the ones that brought it, and they are super excited about Paul and Barnabas. They like them. They're, they're glad they're in their city. It's a different kind of response from Antioch and Iconium, I'll tell you that. And Paul and Barnabas rush into the crowd. They don't respond subtly to this. They don't gather the crowd up and go, hey, tomorrow we should have a meeting, talk through the whole Zeus and Hermes thing and Jesus and look at a comparison chart and figure out how, we just want to explain to you that, you know, you shouldn't, no, 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 no. The second that the gospel is missed, that Jesus is lost in the experience of the gospel, Paul and Barnabas are devastated. They rush into the crowd and they tear their garments. Now, 
Now, that was an extreme event in this particular context. Look, in the, in the Jewish world during this time, tearing your garments was kind of a, a normal thing to do. I mean, it happened all the time. Go read the Old Testament. Read the, I mean, every time someone was bothered, offended, grieving, mad, anything, and they tore their garments. So if you're in a Jewish context and you run and you start tearing your garments, people go, oh, sorry, we realize you're offended. We're so sorry. David tore his garments when he was grieving, when he was upset. You see people tearing their garments when Jesus was uh, before the high priest and he said he was the Messiah and the high priest tears his garments. It's this dramatic thing that they do that kind of show how disgusted they are. But this isn't a Jewish context. This is Lystra. There's no Jewish context here. It's a bunch of Gentiles. Can you imagine? It must have been kind of odd. Running in, <laughs> stop! What are they doing? What are Paul and Barnabas doing here? Well, you know, I, I, I have the privilege on occasion to teach PE at a little Montessori school uh, that our, some of our kids go to. My wife is the PE teacher there, so she does it consistently. And then on occasion, when she's either out of town or something, I teach PE. And I get, you gather all these little kids around, and you know, they're, they're in the uh, first through fifth grade range. And the first thing I always do is when I gather them around, I get them all around me, there's a bunch of them, and I say, okay, there's one rule you cannot forget for the next 45 minutes while we do PE. There's a word you're going to hear come out of my mouth. When this word comes out of my mouth, man, I want immediate compliance. Here it is. When I shout, freeze, I want everybody to stop. And then there's usually a thousand questions. Do we have to freeze our hand as well? Does the heart have to stop? Can I breathe while you're doing You know, kids, I'm like, no, just, just stand still and don't speak. And then for the rest of the time, we're in pretty good shape because anytime things start getting out of hand, I just go, freeze, and uh, half of them stop and the other half kind of work through the process, Right? And in essence, this is what Paul and Barnabas are doing right now. They are running in with a, a dramatic reality, kind of going to everybody, freeze, everybody stop, the oxen stop, the garland stop, the bowing down stop. Everything's got to stop. Everything's got to stop. And then shouting at the top of his voice, it says this, Paul cried out, verse 15, men, why are you doing these things? Now, Paul knows why they're doing it. He's not stupid. He gets it. He understands that they saw an act happen and, and that they're excited about that and they think that they're actually the ones that affected it. But Paul also, remember, explained the gospel very clearly to them while doing that. And so here he is and he's going, stop. Why are you staying in this place? Listen to what I've explained. Listen to what I've said. This is an important message for you. Take a look what he says. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. Paul immediately says, we're not gods, we're just like you. Paul recognizes that even from a Jewish Gentile perspective, he is in nature like these guys. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are by nature children of wrath until the rescue of Jesus Christ. And so he's like, look, we're just like you. We have the same needs you have, we have the same problems you have, we have the same stuff you have. We're no different. The one thing we've got that you don't have right now is this. Take a look. Of, of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. The one thing we've got is we've got some great news for you. And what news do we have? That you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So Paul immediately shouts, listen, listen. 
When we came here, we didn't simply come here to produce some cool things and give you some stuff you need and help you feel better about yourself. That is part of what the gospel does. It brings freedom. It brings new life. It brings all this. But we came you here to point you to the living God so that you would know him and so that he would be glorified among you so that you could be free from chasing after the shadows of these insane gods that you have to manipulate manipulate you stop with this craziness it is just the chasing after demonic insanity but there is a living God who has made all things and we are here to bring news to you of him we are his servants and we are here to point you to him and now Paul unpacks something so beautiful this was a an awakening for me in many ways when I read this the first time and I just thought, wow, this changes part of the story a little bit. Look what he says. He says in verse 16, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. See, this is the oddest thing. When he said that, and the first time I read that, I thought, wow, this is a brand new paradigm for me in terms of my view of how God has been writing his story for all of humanity. Because we are tempted at times, if we look at the story of God, to see it this way. God chooses for himself a nation early on, uh, before the time of the great exodus, the nation of the people of Israel. He protects them, he guards them, he rescues them from their slavery uh, by the people of Egypt. He pulls them out, he protects them in the desert, he gives them the promised land, they overcome their enemies, they take the promised land, they live in the promised land, he gives them the judges, he gives them the prophets, he gives them the revelation, he tells them his story, he loves them, he cares for them, he rescues them over and over again from their from their insanity and their sin as they get captivated by others and then through them he brings about the Messiah to rescue them and bring them into full life with him and we find out oh the Messiah's for everybody so the temptation is God's story's been about the Jewish people and all the Gentiles have been in the way right they sort of a side note like they're the people that the Jewish people keep overcoming they're the people that God keeps moving out of the way they're the enemy but now that Jesus has come now you Gentiles can be God's friend so you kind of feel like when you go to the Gentile people, that's what you kind of have to say. Look, you know, you're kind of the forgotten bunch. The Jewish people were really important. But now that God's done writing his story through them and the Messiah's come, you're lucky because you get in now. But that's not what Paul's saying at all. See what Paul just said here? He said, listen, Gentiles. With the Jewish people, yeah, granted, God chose them, brought them out, protected them, displaying himself through them, wrote his story through them so that we can all see the story and experience the revelation. But with the Gentile people, it's almost even cooler. Because here's what God did. For a long time, he allowed you, all the nations, to run your own way, to worship your own gods, to worship yourselves, to chase after demonic insanity, to live your lives by the flesh, to do whatever you want. And what was God's response to that? Was his response to that, wipe them off the earth? No, 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 no. All that time, while you were chasing after demonic gods and asking them to bring you rain and crops, when rain and crops came, it wasn't them bringing it. It was the very God you were denying who was bringing it. See how that flips upside down the entire philosophy of the pagan mind? 
If I please the gods, then they will give me what I want. And he's saying, the God I'm telling you about gave you what you needed even when you gave him nothing. When you hated him, he loved you and still does. He's still pursuing you. He gave you rain. He gave you fruitful crops. He gave you food for your bellies. And he even gave you gladness for your hearts. This is the God I come to introduce you to. This is the God you need to get to know. Stop chasing after these other idols. And it says this, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. I love that last little sentence there. It's like, okay, they got him to stop with the cow thing, right? But I'm sure some of them in the crowd say, can we just do a little cow for you? Because you're still pretty cool. Just in case you might be Zeus, just a little one. See, it says, man, even after arguing with them and saying, no, it's not about us. It's about God. We're not gods. We're just here representing the living God. They're like, one cow? No. Stop. Put it away. Fine. But you're still awesome. You see this dynamic in them that the people were just struggling so much with this idea that, are you, are you saying that God, the living God, loves us and, and provides for us because he is writing his story in and through us and that we don't need to play games anymore to try to get him to do what we want? Maybe just a little cow. And Paul and Barnabas are continually just saying, no, you, you have to understand this new world you live in. You see, when you have grown up in a culture that is obsessed and longs for comfort and prosperity and, 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 and uh, uh, happiness and, and good things, and then they figure out that they can get those things, you are, you are in a culture that is gonna do almost anything to get what they want. And so that culture designs for themselves different ways to manipulate whatever system needs to be manipulated to find the formula by which they can get the comfort, get the prosperity, get the happiness. And, and this is that culture. They know they deal with the gods this way because they found out the gods are bigger than they are and the gods are the ones that bring all that stuff. And the, the irony is that that kind of culture that worships thousands of things because depending on what's gonna bring them the next good feeling is what they worship. Sounds awful familiar, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound awful familiar? Don't we live in a culture like that ourselves on a planet like that now? Yeah, it's not Zeus and Hermes anymore. That's a thousand other things. Uh, the new iPhone's coming out soon, I'm sure. Let's worship that, that sounds good. You know, it's, it doesn't matter what it is. Anything that's gonna bring a new version of convenience, a new version of prosperity, a new version of joy, a new version of happiness, we, we long for those things, we chase them. That's what our culture does. And, and you and I have, have been bred in that culture. And then we discover the gospel and it reshapes our thinking, but I think just like these people, a lot of times though we now understand things differently, we still struggle with the little cow. You know, like, is it a little cow? Just in case, because... You know, we deal with God in the same way we used to deal with things. Hey, if, 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 what do I have to do? What do I have to say? How do I have to live to make sure that you bless me? Because I, I want to end up on the bad side. And if my circumstances aren't all that they should be, if I don't have everything, if I'm getting sick or I'm losing my house or my job, I'm not finding that next job I need or whatever, then, then maybe somehow I need to figure out some different way of praying, some different way of dealing with God because, because God's not producing what I need. And we get, we get caught up in that. Our culture's caught up in that. Our culture figured out you don't even need the gods anymore. Just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? You write your own destiny. You do it. You make it happen. 
And Paul would be shouting at our culture the same way he's shouting at these guys. Man, listen. Listen, it's not how it works. I'm introducing you to a living God who has been writing his story all along and you are part of that story and he's gonna write it into you and you need to just learn to trust him and long for him and not for the stuff that he produces because he will produce in you exactly what is needed when the time is needed. Our journey is to fall in love not with the provision but with the provider. And we are so obsessed with the provision half the time that we forget about the provider and we're only happy with the provider when the provision's intact. And so this story does, in part, kind of just give us a little, a little check, doesn't it? Those of us that know Jesus and follow him, love Jesus, it kind of comes to us and goes, hey, hey, is there anything of late that the provision is what you long for and the provision is what you're excited about when the provision comes? Because Paul would argue and say, I consider all things rubbish in comparison to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. We live a new life now where the provider is enough for us and the provision is bonus. And so we have to constantly check ourselves and just make sure that our obsession, our longing, our desire, our worship is directed at the provider himself and not at the provision that he brings. And let not the provision and the circumstances dictate to us how good or bad God is, but let God tell us that he is good and then let us go back to our circumstances, whatever they may be, and say, God is good. Sit still, don't speak. It is a moment for us to just kind of go, huh, I wanna make sure I'm worshiping God. But the truth of the matter is in this story, that's not really the moment that's for us. It's a good check, it's a good side note for you and me to kind of check ourselves on. But remember, we are, not, we are not Lystra in this story. Who have we been following all along? Paul and Barnabas, right? We are following them because they know Jesus and they're on mission and we are on mission and we know Jesus. And so the real question to be asking ourselves in this story is, what's happening with Paul and Barnabas? How are they dealing with this circumstance? Because that will be a better point for us to draw application out of and say, if we are on mission like Paul and Barnabas in a society that functionally functions like Lystra in some ways, worshiping many things and being driven by the provision of those things, seeking out the next reality that will make them feel good that will make them happy, that will give them what they need, that will make them prosperous, and whenever they receive that, they will honor and worship whatever brings that to them. How do we deal with that culture? That's a better question to ask. And as we look at that, we see something extraordinary happen in the story that relates deeply to us as we live on mission. Folks, whenever we take the gospel of Jesus Christ, the redemptive reality of the gospel that calls us to love and to act justly and to act full of mercy and to act graciously and to care for the world and to meet the destitute and to, and to heal and to bring life and to bring light and to bring freedom, whenever we live that out and we demonstrate that in any context in our world today, do you think people are gonna be excited about experiencing the realities of the gospel. Uh, yes, are you kidding me? I mean, if you were just loved unconditionally, wouldn't you be excited? If people were meeting your needs when you, didn't need, when you didn't even know them, wouldn't you be excited? If people were feeding you when you were hungry and you didn't ask, wouldn't you be excited? If people at work were treating you beautifully even though you were trying to stab them in the back and take their job from them, wouldn't you be excited? I mean, look, when, when somebody's acting out the realities of the gospel, that's super cool. 
And our society loves that stuff. We've written into our dreams and, and into our rights things like we have the right to happiness and the right to this and the right to that. And when the gospel comes into someone's story as an experience and it is affected by a person or people group, people generally gravitate toward that and think it's awesome. Mosaic Church, I hope, is an example of that. That when people come here, I mean, they're donuts and they're coffee and they're blue shirts and you come in and you dress casual and you park and you come in and the, the experience here is, is to set free and to be a breath of fresh air for you and it's, it's just attractional because the gospel is attractional. You think we do donuts and coffee and stuff because we want people to stay? No. We do all that stuff because the reality is when you experience the gospel, it is an experience of wonder and delight and surprise. We think through this stuff. We want you to walk into what should be a gospel experience here and be surprised and delighted every turn you take. And what do you think people are going to do when they experience that kind of thing, when they experience a community of people that actually love each other and actually care about each other? People are going to say things like this, oh, it's a breath of fresh air. Oh, it's wonderful. Oh, I love it. Is that appropriate? Absolutely it's appropriate. They should love experiencing the gospel. We all should. I love it too. But the temptation we face on mission is that when we are demonstrating the gospel in our workplace, demonstrating the gospel uh, in our social networks, demonstrating the gospel in our neighborhoods, our local and global community, demonstrating the gospel with the way we do church, people are going to love that. And then when we have to start declaring the gospel to them and start going through what Paul said, abandon your foolishness. The life you're living is insane. It's leading you nowhere. You need to turn and follow Jesus. Lay your life down for him. He's come to rescue you. You're a sinner and your destiny is death. What? what? Why are you telling me this stuff? I'm not a sinner. I'm fine. No, no, no. See, you start sharing the gospel. It gets all awkward. And all that fun liking stuff that they did, suddenly then it's not so fun anymore, right? You don't help me. If you're coming to help me with that silly agenda on the stupid gospel, then you can forget about it. I need your help. See, the second we begin to declare the gospel, explain the gospel, proclaim the gospel, that's when it starts getting a little more difficult, a little more awkward. So our temptation is, as individuals, and frankly, in, in the whole, as a body is, let's be demonstrating it all day long so people will experience it because they're happy, we're happy, gospel's happy. But let's not explain it too much because then they get all unhappy. And the trouble with that is that in a subtle way, what begins to develop in us, we don't intend it because we love Jesus, but it begins somewhere. We are afraid that if we explain the gospel often and regularly and extremely, that it's going to offend people or it's going to make them uncomfortable or whatever. So we just continue to demonstrate because at least they're happy. And subtly in us, this thing grows that says, I care more about what people think of me than I do about what people believe about Jesus. That's a dangerous place to land, but an easy place to land. See, we're not gonna get worshiped like Paul and Barnabas with cows. I can pretty much guarantee you that. If it ever happens to you, come tell me. I'd love to hear that story, okay? But it's highly unlikely that someone's ever gonna call you or me Zeus and then bring a cow. But here's what is gonna happen. You are going to demonstrate the gospel. People are gonna love that. And then you're going to be afraid to tell them the gospel because they're not going to start liking that. And you are going to continue to demonstrate and say things like this. Well, I mean, I'm just showing them the love of God. I'm showing it to them. Good. Excellent. 
They're missing the gospel because the gospel experience is leading them to worship whatever gives them happiness. They need to hear about Jesus. Our calling, folks, is not simply to do the good that Jesus did on planet earth. Our calling is to make Jesus known and glorify his name. And if making him known and glorifying his name includes doing good, then we ought to do good, which is true. We ought to do good. But we are not here as a calling to say, you all just keep doing a bunch of good so people will experience Jesus, but don't tell them about him. And this is the temptation we live with. So we live in a world where we would be tempted to worship the provision instead of the provider, and we live in a world where we are tempted to care more about what people think about us as we live the gospel out than what people will believe about Jesus as we declare the gospel to them. And we need to be watchful for those things because that's how the enemy will keep our missional living impotent. We'll be feeling like we're living on mission all the time because we're demonstrating a way, but at the end of the day, it's producing nothing but a bunch of people that worship some version of another God because they're experiencing the gospel, but they're not hearing it. So how do we protect from these things? How do we stay away from falling into these traps? I have this incredible privilege in my home uh, of, of having a, a full house. So my wife and I, we have the privilege of parenting eight kids. And that's a lot of fun. It's a little crazy sometimes, but it's a lot of fun. And uh, as we do that, uh, in our home, there's another dynamic that occurred because we did not have the privilege of parenting some of our eight children from birth onward, and we had the privilege of parenting some of them from birth onward, we have these two dynamics. The one dynamic is four of our kids, we've been pouring basics into them forever, and so now we're at that stage where we're beyond the basics, and we're doing more advanced kind of level parenting. You know, you already know the basics, so we're moving on. Then we got another set of our kids that we didn't get to pour the basics into, so uh, the last two years have been a lot of basics again. And so it's a lot of basics to all eight, and a little advanced, and basics to all eight, and a little advanced. And I've kind of felt like at times, man, the four that had the basics, they're getting a lot of basics again. But I'll tell you what's happened accidentally, but that now I would go and do over and over and over again, and I would tell any parent to do this. The basics bleed out of us so fast, it's unbelievable, both children and adults alike. That's why at Mosaic we say so often, preach the gospel to yourself every day, preach the gospel to each other every day, and then if you have time, preach it to some other people. But if we're not preaching the gospel to ourselves and to one another all the time, we will forget it quickly. And so actually, it's the basics that we have to go over and over and over again with. And it's been such a privilege over the last two years to be forced in our home to continue to revisit the basics. And one of the basic things that I constantly revisit with my children, all eight of them, is because I believe that they're going to be great gospel carriers someday. I believe God has great stories for them. I believe and see in them God read, writing great things in all of them. I come to them regularly and say, man, God has big story for you. And your privilege is to take life and light and freedom, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to live it and declare it and carry it into the world. So you've got to guard that gospel. You've got to guard the gospel in you because you're going to forget it. It's going to bleed out. You're going to get captivated by the tr 10 trillion other things you could give yourself to. So guard the gospel. And how do you guard the gospel? By guarding your hearts. You guard what comes into your heart, and anything that comes into your heart that distracts from the gospel, guard against it, and then pour the gospel into your heart all day long. Gospel, 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 gospel. 
Jesus came, Jesus rescued me, Jesus called me, Jesus restored me, Jesus redeemed me. Unbelievable, how lucky am I? I'm called to mission, let me go tell others. Pour that in, pour that in, pour that in. See, guarding your heart is an act of focus. It is an act of fixing yourself on the things that are above the eternal kingdom and not on this crazy planet we live on. Being obsessed with the things of the kingdom of God, not obsessed with the things of planet Earth. Colossians chapter three, Paul writes verse one and says, now since you are found in Christ, set your mind on things above and not on things of this earth. Colossians 3.17 says that beautiful verse after he unpacks that passage and says, whatever you do in word or deed, do it in the name of Jesus. Your obsession for Jesus must be fixed. Later on, the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 12, therefore, dear brothers, since you are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, fix your eyes on Jesus. He says, cast off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and run with perseverance the race, the story marked out for you and fix your eyes on Jesus. Keep him set. Joel Kaufman, our student ministries pastor, just recently brought, he bought a motorcycle. So he's riding that around, so he took the motorcycle class and he said to me this week, he said, man, in the motorcycle class, when you're taking it, the one thing they tell you over and 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 over again, they never stop telling you is this. They say, when you're on a motorcycle, don't look down in front of you, always fix your eyes on where you want to go. So whether you turn, if you're turning a corner, don't look down, Fix your eyes on the point that you want to end up at and go there. That's good advice, isn't it? Because when you're on the motorcycle, if you're looking down, you're bound to end up colliding with something in front of you. But if you're looking at where you want to go, you're seeing the whole picture. And really, our life with Jesus is the same thing. Set your eyes on where you're going. Set your eyes on the life that he's called you to live and keep them fixed there so you don't look down and get distracted with the little stuff going on in front of you. And when we're not distracted by the stuff in front of us, guess what happens? When our eyes are fixed on Jesus, suddenly the provision isn't nearly as important to us. The provider is what matters. So we stop worshiping the provision, stop longing for the provision, and start longing for the provider. And since our eyes are fixed on the provider, whenever we're in a situation where someone is getting all enamored by experiencing the gospel that we are living out for them, and they start going, oh my gosh, you're so awesome, you're amazing, and, and we see, we immediately, because eyes are fixed on Jesus, what bleeds out of us all the time? Oh man, let me tell you more about Jesus. See, you won't have to explain because it's all you'll be telling them all the time. We guard from being trapped by these very things on mission by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, by keeping our minds set on things above, and by taking our eyes off the things of this world, so that whether it is provision versus provider for us, or whether it is wanting people to like me more than I want people to know and believe Jesus, both those disappear when my obsession, my longing, and my desire is for Jesus. Because what's gonna come out of me is the story of Jesus, not my story. And that's the incredible life we get to live. That's the incredible story we get invited into. To demonstrate the gospel, yes, but equally and as importantly, to declare it to explain it, to proclaim it, so that people will know Jesus and know his love and not just know a gospel experience that makes them feel better. Because the gospel will do that, but that's not where we stop.
it's only where we start. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your incredible love for us. The incredible ways that you have consistently demonstrated to us from the beginning of humanity that you are revealing yourself to us, that you're pursuing us, that you love us, and that you have a story for us. God, it's so awesome even to think about the Gentiles that Paul so clearly demonstrated here that, that you have been showing yourself to them all along, all along. And God, may we be acutely aware of the fact that you have consistently and constantly been writing a story for us so that we would be so concerned and so obsessed with and long so much for you and the continued story you're writing that we would forget about all the little things that we become so captivated by. And that when we live out the gospel as people respond to experiencing that gospel, that we would have the courage to also articulate the gospel to them, to declare it to them, to explain it to them, so that they might never simply worship the experience that the gospel brings, but that they might know and worship you, Jesus. Make us men and women and children that are confidently declaring the gospel regularly in our relationships, in our workplaces, in our social networks, neighborhoods, and around the globe. God, whatever opportunity you give us in our workplace, whatever aspirations you lead us into, whatever position we gain, whatever space we have in our friendships, whatever leadership role we play in our neighborhood, all those things, God, would you use them to be platforms where we can declare the gospel and live it out so that people would know you, follow you, and live free in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.